This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by a Vancouver lawyer and an American PhD ex-cop who's an expert on drug recognition to talk further about the new laws and tools for law enforcement coming down in less than two months when cannabis is legalized October 17th. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Higher gasoline prices help push the country's annual inflation rate in July to its highest reading since September of 2011, Statistics Canada said on Friday. The federal agency said the consumer price index for July was up to 3% on a year-over-year basis, and that's up from 25 in June. Economists had expected a year-over-year inflation rate of 2.5%, so they're surprised too. The result put inflation at the upper end of the Bank of Canada's target range of 1% to 3%. The Canadian dollar rose more more than half a cent to 76.5 U.S. cents after the inflation report was released. The Bank of Canada can use interest rate hikes as a tool to help prevent inflation from climbing too high. The central bank raised its trend-setting interest rate to 1.5% earlier this summer, and this new report may cause another interest rate hike sometime in October. So far, we've been seeing 0.25 interest rate hikes. We could see a 0.5% next time around gas air travel dining out and mortgage increases all help push yesterday's inflation number higher more information this week about some popular breakfast foods and snacks that could contain possibly dangerous amounts of a weed-killing chemical. A study by the Environmental Working Group in the States has found that a number of cereals, granola bars, and oat-based products contain glyphosate the herbicide sold to consumers under the name Roundup. Aha, there's a familiar name. A World Health Organization agency has declared that glyphosate is probably carcinogenic, while California has listed it in the registry of chemicals known to cause cancer. Roundup manufacturer Monsanto was ordered last week to pay $289 million for contributing to a California man's terminal cancer. Thousands of similar lawsuits have been filed. According to the Environmental Working Group, farmers in the states are increasingly spraying glyphosate on oats and other non-GMO crops because the herbicide dries the plants out and allows them to be harvested sooner. Health Canada most recently studied glyphosate in 2017, describing the chemical last year as, quote, unlikely to pose a human cancer risk, close quote, and is standing by its previous conclusion that products containing it do not present unacceptable risk to human health or the environment when used according to directions. A full list of products considered unsafe and which contains many products I'm willing to bet are in your house is available at the Environmental Working Group's website, and you can find that at ewg.org. 
Now, here's a message we hear every year about this time, and it never seems to change. The Canadian Blood Service is reminding us it is in urgent need of donors before the Labor Day weekend, specifically over 22,000 donations by August 26. Summer is the slow season for donations, and by the end of summer, supplies are low. Type O blood is most needed, as it is the most compatible with other types and is used in emergency situations. There have been a few changes to eligibility requirements lately that will make it easier for some to donate, too. Making an appointment to donate has never been easier. Visit blood.ca and download the Give Blood app or just call 1-888-2-DONATE to find a site near you. And finally, as we enjoy yet another weekend of sun, kind of, and fun, minus the heat, at least for today, one even hotter city has some interesting advice for its citizens during their heat wave. Take a break from sex. The health secretary for Santa Marta City in Colombia, South America, had this advice this week, and we quote, stay hydrated, wear loose clothing, and refrain from sexual activity during the day, close quote. Santa Marta has been dealing with plus 40 degree temperatures. That would be plus 100 on the old scale this week. But there's no word how many of the 600,000 people who live there are taking City Hall's advice seriously. The local hospitals have been overwhelmed with heat stroke cases. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at some more later in the show. Coming up in just a few moments, a conversation about cannabis legalization and its impact on our roads and our courts. Lawyer Kyla Lee and drug recognition expert Lance Platt will be here to give you the facts and take your calls. Stay with us. This is Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. This uh, smoky, hazy Saturday afternoon in Vancouver. I'm Sterling Fox. It's a pleasure to welcome Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Back to Vancouver Consumer. Hello. Good. Welcome back, Kyla. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you with us. I must say that your last visit prompted the largest amount of emails and listener feedback that we have had in a very long time. Oh my uh, not all of it positive, but certainly all of it thoughtful and and, and very. It was. It's just it was remarkable actually we appreciate the the fact that people took a lot of time uh to, to to express what they thought after hearing you we have another guest and you know this person too so tell us and introduce please uh dr platt Yes, so uh, today we're also going to be talking to Dr. Lance Platt. He is a former police officer. He has a PhD um, from, oh, he's going to, um, A&M, Texas A&M. Texas A&M. Yes. <laughs> um, and he uh, is an expert in uh, drug recognition evaluation tests. Okay, Dr. Lance Platt, welcome to Vancouver Consumer, sir. Thank you, Mr. Fox. And you can call me Sterling Lance and I'll drop the doc, okay? How, how's that for a deal? You got it, Sterling. And, and Bryan, Texas is your home. Where are you in te- in the state of Texas? Bryan, Texas is about 110 miles northwest of Houston. Okay. We're in the central eastern part of Texas. We're right next to College Station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M University is. That's right. Uh, now, when you were a police officer, Lance, who uh, what force did you work for? I worked for the city of College Station, Texas. Okay. And uh, it was while you were a police officer that the police force gave you an opportunity to take some university courses and advance yourself professionally that led eventually to your PhD, correct? 
Uh, more or less, that's correct. It was more a uh, me wanting to provide better for my family. Um, so I decided to go back to graduate school and uh, completed my Ph.D. in uh, 2004. But I was employed full time uh, while I was going to school. No student loans, just me and my wife <laughs> writing checks every month to pay for it. But well, it's, it's worked out. Well, and of course, the upside of all of that was pretty lean years while you were getting it done, but no student loan sort of Damocles hanging over the rest of your life now that it's over, right? That is correct. So tell us about the Drug Recognition Evaluation Program. You did your Ph.D. on this, Lance. And, and Kyla, before, before Lance tells us about it, how is the Drug Recognition Evaluation deal going to factor into Canadian law in two months when cannabis becomes legal? So in two months, once there's legalization under Bill C-46, the results of the drug recognition evaluation test, if they, if the officer says, I believe you're impaired by a, a central nervous system depressant at the end of the test, and your blood or urine test shows a central nervous system depressant in your body, the results of that will be conclusive proof that you were impaired and that you were impaired by that drug. Oh, okay. And Lance, uh, let's cut to the chase. How accurate is a typical drug recognition evaluation well what you need to understand sterling is and i don't mean any disrespect by this at all in no way shape or form the people doing the evaluations on the subjects are police officers right and the entire course for drug recognition expert is about two weeks Um, i challenge anyone out there to find me a pharmacologic or pharmacology course that lasts two weeks and that's that's about it. I mean, the DRE program was was actually brought about in the in the mid seventies um, in Los Angeles, California. Okay, and for for good reason. I mean, that you had people sometimes that they would arrest them for maybe a DUI. They would blow in, in, into the machine. The machine would have a low level, mm-hmm. and the person could say, "Well, their behavior is not commensurate with this level." So we need something else to determine if this person is under the influence of a drug. Other than alcohol. And okay. that's the key, Sterling, for the DRE. It's other than alcohol. Right. And and does the does this uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, because, of course, if, if the uh, the suspect that the cops have pulled over uh, for being DUI uh, blows uh, next to nothing on the breathalyzer and is still quite obviously impaired, would the next step typically be the roadside sobriety test to at least Uh, indicate to the officer that my suspicions are, in fact, valid. This guy can't walk a straight line and and do the other ultra-basic requirements of the roadside sobriety test. Well, yeah, you would think that, Sterling, but what you just explained to me, the roadside test are used for alcohol. Marijuana is not alcohol. Alcohol is not marijuana. Right. Totally different substances. The tests that the officers use out in the field now on their DUI investigations are specific for alcohol intoxication, ETOH. As far as I know, Sterling, there are no studies out there that correlate any other physical test to impairment by 
cannabis at any level. Kyla, are you aware here in Canada, given that we've now got this this two-month deadline, and I had a chat with Adam Palmer, the new president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police on the radio yesterday about another subject, but, you know, it's all coming fast, and they're just really trying to keep up. Is there at least a revision to the roadside sobriety test coming in Canada that would accommodate some kind of testing for marijuana if, if all it really tests for, as Lance indicates, is, is uh, booze. No, and Lance has identified the key problem with using the standardized field sobriety tests to test for drug impairment other than alcohol in Canada. It's that they weren't developed for that purpose, and they're not effective for that purpose. Lance, how, uh, how inaccurate, then, is an alcohol-based, uh, an alcohol-type roadside test conducted on a person who is clearly impaired but doesn't blow anything on the breathalyzer, so the, the officer says, well, i got to do something, so do this. Uh, how, uh, if it's not designed to test for marijuana, is it really not even close in terms of the results? Well, the, again, when we talk about the Drug Recognition Expert Program, which, what you probably will hear from officers, police officers, is that it's scientific in nature. It's not, Sterling. I mean, this, it has never been peer-reviewed. There's no published articles that state that this program can detect impairment really from any drug. There was a study that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration put out, which is the which basically is the United States government's arm that deals with impaired driving. And basically what they said in their report was, because THC and alcohol are so different, yeah. it would be impossible, really, to come up with a set of tests that could define impairment. Because right. when you talk about alcohol, I mean, alcohol is a pretty well-known substance. You know you have eight, 12 ounces in a can. It could be you know, 3, 5, 4% alcohol. You know that if a person weighs a certain weight, they drink a certain amount of alcohol. There's a better than average expectation that you might see these indicators of impairment. Sure. And understand, Sterling, alcohol takes about nah, 20, 25, maybe even 30 minutes to reach a peak absorption. Right. Marijuana, on the other hand, is different. You can re- reach a peak THC, a peak THC absorption in minutes after you finish smoking. Right. So you know it's it's because they're so different. The physicality or the physiology that you may see in the behavior in a person, and I think the problem is, is a lot of people have the concept out there of the the Cheech and Chong mm-hmm. uh, uh, shows, and hey, if it's marijuana, you know, it, it's they're going to look like this. And I have actually heard police officers Sterling before say that, you know, one joint equals a twelfth pack, you know, a half a joint is a six pack. Wow! But you know, it there is no proof for that now could they come up with a set of tests that could test impairment for cannabis that's a really good question and it would take a lot of time it's possible but because there's so many different strains of cannabis there's so many different thc levels there's so many different uses of cannabis i mean there's 80 different types of cannabinoids you would really have to scale it down sterling and because a lot of that is not known if you pick a joint up and you look at it it's a joint Mm-hmm. But you pick up a can of alcohol, you look at it, you can, you can say, well, I know that there's basically this much alcohol in this can. So that's all right it's on the label. Marijuana. That's right, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, Kyla, back here in Canada for a second. The 
uh, a part of this is is what Lance has been doing professionally now for quite a few years, which is the drug recognition evaluation education process. How many or what percentage of Canadian police officers, to your knowledge, are going to be ready, having received their two-week drug recognition evaluation program on October 17th? I think the number that are going to be ready is going to be fewer than a 1,000. Across Canada? Across Canada, but okay. their ultimate goal is to have 2,000 officers trained um, ultimately across Canada, hopefully shortly after legalization. And they've been pumping out the training really quickly to try and get these officers all up to speed. The last number I saw, there were about 700 trained across the country. And typically, uh, Lance, when uh, an officer goes for this uh, two-week drug recognition evaluation program, it's an immersion deal. You go and stay somewhere for two weeks and take long days and, and, and learn as much as is possible in that limited time. Is that the approach? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it is, it, it is a long process. And I do understand that some departments, I know it's, 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 it's the same here in, it's here in the States. You send one guy away, you may have one guy left or nobody left. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the two week training class is, is taxing on time. However, I believe, Sterling, if you're going to call yourself an expert, in recognition of drugs, which basically you're saying you're a pharmacologist because that's what they do. I have no problem with them being trained longer. I mean, you know, to, to, to me, two weeks is that that's not really a lot of, a lot of time. Right. Go to the class. They give you the, the course, the, 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 uh, the course background. They give you the court, the classroom portion. Then you do what's called evaluations. You actually go to a jail facility and when they're bringing people into the jail, if you see someone that you believe is acting out of the ordinary, you go over and talk to him and say, hey, my name's Lance Platt. I'm with this. I'm with, you know, I'm with the state of Texas. And could we do a rec- drug recognition evaluation on you? And usually it's done right in the jail. So understand this DRE evaluation, it's post arrest. Right. They're already under arrest for a DUI. It's just the officer determines, you know what, I don't think this is alcohol. It's something else. Is that so the way the DRE will come in? Okay, now Kyla, is that the way it's going to happen in Canada too? You're going to get one of these DRE evaluation things at once you've been taken downtown and booked. This is not something that happens on the side of the road then? No, it's not. Um, There'll be, you know, usually the three standard tests or a saliva test roadside, and then the person will be arrested, taken downtown, given the opportunity to consult a legal counsel if they want, and then given the DRE test. Now, uh, Lance said he, uh, these officers that go to the jails, have to ask the individuals whether they can conduct this test on them. Is the same requirement going to be here in Canada, or does Canadian law say, you're going to have to take this test, like it or not? Canadian law makes it mandatory so it is a criminal offense to refuse to participate in the drug recognition evaluation program and that's why in Canada we've actually amended the program to take out a couple of the steps that they do in the steps in the United States because it would be wrong and contrary to our charter of rights to make people tell you certain things about what drugs they've used. Our guests on the program this hour, Dr. Lance Platt joining us from College Station, Texas, and Kyla Lee from Vancouver's Acumen Law Corporation. And we're back with more after the news. And welcome back to... 
Vancouver consumer for a hazy Saturday, he said kindly, looking through all the smoke and not seeing the North Shore again. Oh, by the way, uh, we just had the sports on the radio there on the newscast. One element, one tiny sporty note for baseball fans locally. The Vancouver Canadians are home tonight at Nat Bailey Stadium. There will not, however, be the uh, uh, much-expected and anticipated fireworks show after the game. Canadians put it out yesterday. Uh, just too dry. Even even in the, in the city with fire halls everywhere, they're just not going to take any chances. So if you were expecting a fireworks show after the Canadians game tonight, not going to happen. Our guests on Vancouver Consumer this hour, Dr. Lance Platt, who is joining us from Bryan, Texas, and Kyla Lee, who's back with us from Vancouver's Acumen Law Corporation. And we're talking about uh, the drug recognition evaluation program that exists already in the United States. Dr. Platt has taken the course, has taught the course, has uh, uh, appeared in court. Court as an expert witness, not always on the side of the of the course. And uh, Kyla, of course, is a defense attorney here in Vancouver. And Kyla, since we last talked a month or so ago, uh, we talked about this at that time. There is at that time there was no app- uh, approved roadside testing device for marijuana, similar to the breathalyzer for booze. Well, since our last encounter, there has been a device approved. It's a German-made. Uh, thing called the Drager Drug Test 5000, uh, and it has been approved for Canadian police forces. Are they available in, in, in cop shops across Canada yet? Not yet, but they're working on getting them out, and they hopefully will have them in most of the major police forces by the time that we have legalization. Dr. Platt, are you aware, Lance, of, of the uh, Drager unit that uh, has just been approved for by Canadian forces? I, I, I am somewhat aware with it, um, Sterling. Um, uh, my question, I guess, would be, I mean, this is, I could be for Kyla. Does that allow them to separate the active THC from a metabolite in a person's um, saliva? It's not clear from what limited information we're able to access about the device. Um, the Dreger's been really good at sort of keeping a lid on a lot of the information about how it does the analysis and also what it's testing for. Some of the information on their website just says cannabinoids, while some of the other information says Delta 9 THC. So I'm going to be very interested in learning that, but I think it's going to be a quest to learn that information, not just getting it readily, unfortunately. Uh, by, by the way, friends, our lines are wide open. If you'd like to jump in on the conversation with a question or a comment, uh, you're most welcome to 604-280-9898. Again, 604-280-9898. Uh, Lance Platt, when you go to court, uh, frequently called by one of the two sides, uh, as an expert witness, so therefore you are a friend of the court, just giving the facts as you see them regarding mostly drug recognition evaluations. Is it safe to say that uh, a lot of your testimony is of the negative variety when it comes to the DRE. Yeah, you, you, you could say that. I mean, I guess it would really depend on how you d- define the term negative. Um, Sterling, I, look, I'm all about science, okay? The claim is, is that this is a scientific program. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's neither been peer-reviewed nor published, so... Until they can back this up with science, and even you know the, the, the study that I referred to from 2017 that the United States government did, mm-hmm. even that study disputes the DRE program. So you know there, there's 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 some there's some pushing and shoving going on here. But look, let me get this straight, Sterling. I don't condone drunk driving at all or right. drug driving. I don't think anybody does. 
However, I also, and I have seen this firsthand with my business, you get arrested for a DUI, and I know it this way in the States. I mean, it is a big, huge deal. You bet. And I guess we can't even come to your country if you have a DWI or a DUI in the United States. So if I am only asking to use proven techniques. I mean, you, you were talking about the Drager and about the, the saliva. Well, you know, THC can stay in your system, certainly for 30 days. That's true. That's true. So, I mean, how can they, how can they differentiate, differentiate and say, well, you know, this, this is this level, but he did it 30 days ago, so it's not an impairing. So there's a lot of, of unknowns, and that, that's all I'm doing, Sterling. I'm just calling attention to the unknowns. Absolutely. Okay, now, Kyla, let's let's follow up on what Lance talked because we don't know much about this device yet. It's brand new, but again, again, this is the roadside. This is the Canadian response to the police forces who, for the last two years, uh, and right up to this morning, have been clamoring for a, a roadside testing device similar to a breathalyzer for marijuana for cannabis products. And so this is this is what they're going to do uh, if they pull you over. They're gonna they they're gonna take a sample of your saliva with what kind of like a Q tip like something like that. It's a swab. It's a, sort of a cylindrical shaped piece of cotton that's going to be rubbed around inside your mouth. Okay, and then they put it into a small cartridge like container, and there's uh, there's some evaluation, some chemical evaluation. How long is the turnaround time between the swab inside your cheek and the results made available to the officer? at the roadside, presumably while you wait, because I doubt they're going to let you go anywhere. No, they won't let you go. Um, You're looking at one to four minutes of just swabbing your mouth to collect enough saliva to be analyzed. Okay. And then from there, up to 10 minutes for the device to actually conduct the analysis of the sample. Okay. Uh, And and we'll skip past the results phase for just a second, because I'm concerned about one other detail. After all of this process is over... The authorities now have a sample of your DNA in that uh, swab that they took at the roadside. Mm-hmm. What ha- what happens to that, Kyla? After the suppose you suppose it turns out you're benign. Oh, sorry. Have a nice night. Off you go. They still got a sample of your DNA in their possession. What happens to it? Nobody knows. The legislation doesn't address what happens to the cartridge after the police are done testing it. And after the analysis is done by the device, it shoots out the cartridge, sealed up uh, with a like a cap put on it to keep it sanitary. So it can be taken away. It can be put somewhere. And it can be accessed later, but we don't know who's going to get to keep it, who's going to get to take it, and if it's the police, what they're going to get to do with it. Right. And uh, does the bill, does the law surrounding the legalization of cannabis and enforcement capabilities within, does the law not address the consequences of taking DNA samples at roadside? No, it only addresses the consequences of taking blood or urine samples at the police station later on and and the uses to which those can be put. But your saliva sample is completely open. What happens to the other samples if if indeed uh, the the thing goes to the point where you're required to give more? So they're generally preserved um, in the uh, RCMP forensic laboratory um, because you're entitled to get a, um, there's two taken and you're entitled to get one for private testing. Other than that, they're not permitted to be used for any other purpose. But there's no express prohibition on using your saliva 
for any other purpose. Interesting. Lance, how does this uh, resonate in the states? We've got at least eight American states with full-on legalization of marijuana, next door in Washington being one of them. What, what do you know about their testing procedures and what they do with samples uh, containing the DNA of individuals once the testing process is over? Well, I do know that um, I'm not sure if we're doing the saliva testing now. I think it's 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 mostly in the uh, in the uh, practice stage. But one thing, Sterling, I think that that really needs to be considered because I mean I'm hearing all, all this discussion. I haven't heard the officers mentioned one time. I mean, I don't think it's feasible to give an officer a Q-tip and have him stand on the side of the road and what did you, I think Kyla said three to four minutes mm-hmm. of swabbing someone's mouth. Yeah. I mean, that to, I'm sorry, sir. That's absolutely ridiculous that, that they would even consider doing something like well, that. Well, especially given the fact, Lance, that we, we know that not all people that get pulled over by the gendarmes are keen and tickled about it. And some of them get a little, a little miffed and some of them are downright belligerently uncooperative. Well, I can tell you, Sterling, with 100% accuracy, that I never pulled anybody over that was just overwhelmed and overjoyed to see me. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I can't imagine sticking that. Sterling, would you let someone stick a stick a swab in your mouth and swab it for four minutes? I would be extremely unhappy about that. I, I would. I would not. <laughs> that would make me extremely unhappy. So, I mean, but let me stop you there, Lance, because Kyla's got this expression on her face. So, what happens at the roadside? And and you want to stick a Q-tip in my face for four minutes? Get get stuffed. I say to the arresting officer or to the guy who's pulled me over, what's my legal status at that moment as soon as I refuse for personal reasons to be swabbed at the roadside? Well, you're under arrest then for refusing to provide a sample. You're required to stand there and participate in this extremely invasive process where another person is literally rubbing an object inside your mouth for several minutes. Okay. Uh, and uh, the other factor that I've only read about with this new Drager drug test 5000 testing device the Canadian uh, law enforcement agencies are going to have is that uh, below a, a certain Celsius, I think it's four degrees Celsius, this, uh, the accuracy of said uh, device is more than a little shaky. And in Canada, we spent a lot of our year at below four degrees Celsius. Yes, the operating temperature for the device is 4 degrees to 40 degrees Celsius. And then the cartridges themselves have a separate operating temperature. So what actually gets put in the mouth and then put into the device has an even uh, less wide operating temperature range. So it's really unclear how this is going to be used in a feasible manner at the roadside. And I think it's important to note, Sterling, that this wasn't one of the devices that the government actually pilot tested. Okay. Uh, so this is, this is, yeah, cause they had it. We, they had, we knew they were, they were running tests on some, but this wasn't on that short list. Let's include some of our uh, listeners as we go forward. Uh, in Langley, Duncan, hello. Hello. Oh, yes, go oh, ahead. Hi, uh, Sterling. Sir. Is that you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I don't think anybody's brought this up yet, but just supposing I'm sitting somewhere and, uh, I get a whole bunch of, uh, secondhand marijuana smoke and then i get pulled over on the car so uh, like do i would i have marijuana inside my uh, body that's an excellent question duncan I, and and well and well put because uh, you know you go to a concert kyla you don't need to be smoking you can get a pretty good contact high and it was not your fault and you get pulled over duncan says is he going to get busted too 
Potentially. There have been studies that have shown elevated THC levels from secondhand smoke in people who are with other people who are consuming large amounts of cannabis. Okay. And uh, uh, Lance, what can you tell us, uh, again, based on your experience as an expert witness, to say nothing of being in law enforcement, about this secondhand business? Yeah, the, Kyle is correct. There are there was a couple of studies done, um, one in 2015 and one in 2006, that showed that there were that people did test positive um, as a result of secondhand marijuana smoke. So, yeah, I mean and that's that's a factor, Starling. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's. I mean, you can't smell alcohol. Uh, you, you know, open a beer and smell it, and then it, it it's not going to be positive in your blood, but. You can have the secondhand smoke, absolutely, and and that's an area, unfortunately, Sterling. I don't believe that there's been a lot of look into that. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of research, but that is definitely a concern. That and the biohazard of the the Q-tip. I mean, that that's it's a train wreck waiting to happen. Well, is what I'm saying. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time here, Lance, but I'd appreciate your thoughts on how the men and women in blue are going to be trained to conduct this invasive test. Well, um, I don't know. I guess they would just uh, just tell them, you know, to, to put it, put the, the Q-tip in the mouth and swab the mouth. Um, I, I I hasten to say that it, that it's going to be perfect. I mean, saliva is it's a biohazard. I mm. mean, saliva can, can contain diseases. I mean, what what happens when when someone one of the officers gets you know get, get, gets a disease from the saliva exposure or somebody coughs in their face because they're right down in their mouth? I mean, there's literally there's less benefit, Sterling, in, in, in my opinion, for, for doing that. I mean, I think there's other ways, but you know, having an officer collect a biohazard on the side of the road, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, they don't draw blood on the side of the road. I no. mean, I believe they take them to a hospital. You know, so maybe they could take them to the hospital to get the swab done. I mean, it's 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 it depends. I mean, I, I'm not really that sure how they're going to do that. Well, of course, it's a work in progress. We still got a couple of months to get it all together and and organized. Lance, I have to let you go because I'm out of time. I do appreciate yours on a Saturday afternoon. It's a real pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for making some room for us today. Darling, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Corporation. By the way, you can find her at Acumen Law, A-C-U-M-E-N, acumenlaw.ca, and all the contact points right there. Kyla, thanks for coming back. I have a feeling we'll be doing this again, probably once the legalization of process actually clicks past the starting gate and we're off on the adventure. And uh, I have a feeling you and your fellow criminal defense lawyer, fraternity and sorority across the country are going to be one busy sector of the legal profession in the weeks and months ahead. I look forward to it. Thanks for coming by. It's good to see you again. And we're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Kyla Lee and Dr. Lance Platt for another very informative hour, and thanks for the calls as well. Next Saturday, we'll talk debt solutions with our friends at BDO First Call, and we'll look forward to your calls to family lawyer Stuart Zuckerman next Saturday as well. Time now for Duly Noted, and this hour, our producer Ben Dooley looks at money-saving back-to-school shopping tips. Thanks, Sterling. For many parents, the back-to-school season can be an expensive one. In fact, some say it's the second most expensive season of the year after Christmas. Chartered professional accountant Robin Trobe says parents shouldn't have to spend that much if they're just buying the essential back-to-school items. 
Tope says they also don't have to buy everything in that mad dash of the last week of August. If there's certain things that are really marked down or heavily discounted now uh, and they're big ticket items, it's worth it. But I don't really think anyone needs to have like a massive inventory of, you know, pencils and, and paper and stuff like that. That can always be purchased. Teachers and school boards are echoing that statement. Grade 2, 3 teacher Ben Kirkward says parents should wait until the first week of school is over. Most teachers will send home a letter with what's needed. Um, so to wait for that letter and then only go out and get what you need. A backpack and a lunchbox and maybe some pencils and some pencil crayons. But then after that, I would wait to see what the teacher uh, wants. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we have to go. A new survey from Insights West confirms what we've suspected for a few years now. B.C. people are wired to our smartphones, and not all in a good way, either. The last survey was four years ago, and in that period, our dependence on our phone has increased exponentially. This time, 66% of us said our phones play a very important part in our lives. That's up from 50 57% four years ago, and 21% said they are smartphone addicts, with a small number in that group reporting an unhealthy addiction. Smartphone ownership in B.C. is almost universal, with a growth of 25% in the last four years, and now... 85% of all British Columbians own a smartphone. 95% of people 18 to 24 own smartphones. And here's a revealing stat. BC folks now spend more time on their smartphones than they do watching TV every week by an average of just under two hours. We also use our phones more than laptops, desktops, and iPads. We still text and email about the same amount as we did four years ago, but the big usage increases have come from using fitness tracker apps, watching movies, online banking, and GPS, along with video chats and taking pictures, all of which are way up. Vancouver is the second priciest destination in Canada this summer, according to a new survey from CheapHotels.org. The survey compared hotel rates of 30 Canadian destinations for the month of August. Only centrally located hotels, three stars or more, were included in Vancouver. Visitors will spend an average of 324 bucks for the least expensive double rooms available. Only one destination is more expensive and that's Banff at 336 a night and leading the ranking of priciest summer destinations in the country. Canmore, by the way, just down the road from Banff, completes the podium at number three. The average uh, price per night in Canmore, $316. The priciest destination in Ontario, Niagara-on-the-Lake, ranking fifth most expensive in Canada and an average of 230 a night. Toronto, an average of 156 per night. Least expensive from the survey destinations Edmonton and Saskatoon where travelers may find rooms for about a terribly civilized $100 a night. 324 in Vancouver. Yikes! No wonder your friends want to come and stay at your house. And that is our program for today, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira at the controls. I'm Sterling Fox. Join us again next Saturday afternoon at 2 for another episode of Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.